Hello, everybody. Welcome to part two of the podcast. Uh, if only you could see me, right? <laughs> so I, I need to explain something to you. So obviously, I've got part one out. I know quite a few of you have told me in the past that you like to listen to the end of your podcasts while you're cleaning the house, doing a bit of cooking, wrapping presents and stuff, you know, and I like that image. I like to know that I'm part of your Christmas. So I've got part one out. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to get parts two and three out, just in case. You know, see so that you've either got them to listen to over the festive season, but if you're very busy on Christmas Eve, you know, and, and you want to listen to more than one part, I thought, I'm going to get them all out, and then you can consume them as and when you wish. So uh, I've edited together the first one, got it out, edited together the main parts of the second and third, and then I realised I need to record the introductions. Of course, by now, it's looking at my watch, it's 22.11 at night. So I've got three, uh, you know, uh, family members in the house. Is Becky and the two girls. Last thing I want to do is disturb the two girls when they're asleep, because, you know, Becky wouldn't take that well, <laughs> uh, and you wouldn't want, you know, shouting toddlers and babies in the background. So I thought, right, I'll sneak out to the car and I'll record the podcast in the car. So that's where I'm bringing you this from. I'm sitting in the dark with frozen windows, holding my podcast microphone in my hand with it plugged into my laptop. Uh, my neighbour walked past uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, to watch me talking into the mic, uh, and she, I, I think she's given up on me now. <laughs> I think my neighbours have given up on me. So, so yeah, so that, that's what's going on at this end at the moment. So I, I hope you appreciate the effort. So, yeah, so this is part uh, part two where we discuss uh, bunkai questions and uh, my likes and dislikes questions for me personally. Uh, and in part three, uh, we've got a whole host of uh, topics for that one uh, where we discuss uh, teaching, uh, the miscellaneous questions and the future of practical karate. Um, I must admit that the teaching section, I think of all the sections this year, that's been my favourite. That's not to decry the stuff that's in this episode, of course. So I hope you find it uh, useful and enjoyable. Uh, I'm going to... <laughs> finish this recording get back inside where it's uh, much warmer so um, yeah okay here's part two of the podcast Okay, so the Bunkai questions. Uh, the first question we've got from Marlon Wilson, and he says that in his system he has the uh, the Pinan cutters and the Hanshi, uh, but the rest are not Okinawan forms. Uh, he was inspired to learn uh, MP cutter and then some others, and then it occurred to him uh, how many forms is is optimal. Uh, and this is it's a um, there's an ongoing balance with that, I think, where in terms of depth of understanding, it's obviously better to focus your attention on a smaller number of cutter. However, I don't think we should be the generation to uh, take a lot of the, the, the cutter out of karate. So, for example, if everyone just said, oh, we're just going to do two, then a lot of the cutter would get cold. Uh, and it might be that for uh, other generations, those cutters would prove useful. So my own approach to this is I've almost got like a sliding scale. And it's it's kind of an incomplete thought at the moment in the way I want to express it. But, but I'm thinking of it like an archery target where you've got the gold in the middle, which are the, and that would represent the small number of cutter that you really delve deep into. And, and, and there should be a small number of cutter there. So, so for me and mine, that would primarily be uh, the Pinan cutters and Naihanshi. So just like Marlon, they're, they're the ones that within me and my group that we emphasize the most. 
Now, slightly out from that, on the archery target, if you like, so the next ring, uh, we also look at cutters like uh, Chinto, Kashanku, Pasai. Uh, so these are the ones that are obviously related to the Pinan cutters and will inform the understanding of the core ones. So we do them in um, a you know, good degree of depth, but not quite to the same degree you know and then you move a little bit further out now for us then we've got the nisiaches and the one shoes so these are cutters that and, and others but so these are cutters that we uh spend time analyzing spend time practicing we break down the cutter in full but but it's still not the core focus and as you move further out you no know, then then we've got cutters that uh that i superficially uh i can tell you the bunkai for it i'll maybe walk through it once in a while then you get further out and i've got the cutter that i can physically walk through that i've never really kind of learnt the bunkai to or analysed so so for, for me I think we all need that kind of sliding scale so if you and your system have you know, whatever it is, 18, 20 odd cutters, whatever it is. I don't think you need to cool them down, but you may decide that you're not going to look at all of them equally because if you do that, obviously you're going to lose a bit of depth for some of them. So in, in Marlon's case, where he's doing a relatively small number already, I, I would say there is some value in studying some extra ones simply because they give you alternate expressions of the core principles. So if MP is one that takes your fancy, then by all means have a look at it. So it, it's not vital. You know, you can get by with a you know, very small number of kata because ultimately you're talking about common core principles. And for civilian self-defense, you're talking about explosive situations that last seconds. You don't need a, a massive amount of techniques. You just need solid internalized principles. Um, so but there the, the could be um, value in learning one or two extra. And also, again, you've got the point where when we talk about optimal, it's not just function either. What also comes into play to a degree is just, you know, what do you enjoy? So, uh, I, like, for me, I'm someone who loves breaking down kata. So I, I, there's lots that I look at. There's lots that I study. I don't need to do that, but I enjoy doing that. So in terms of, you know, what's optimal, I think you probably are there already. If you've got the Pinans and Naihanshi, you, you've, you've got enough there. If you're inspired to study some extra ones, you know, have at it. I think there can be value in doing that. So if MP or Wanshu, to give it its, its alternate name, if that's one that takes your fancy, learn it, break it down, because it will give you insights and understanding into the core cutter you've already got. You know, and it's okay if you just go, I just like the look of that cutter. I just want to learn it for the, the joy of learning it. There can be value in that, uh, in that too. So I think the key thing, the thing we can't get away from is there needs to be a small number that we study in depth. Once you move beyond that small number, you know, there can be benefit, there can be an enjoyment in studying the others but to try and study all of them in depth there's not enough hours in the day so um at the smaller number the better for the deep study but you can certainly add extra ones to that and there can be benefit in uh, in doing so so the next one's from Dustin Lundy. Uh, he said that he's just starting his own Shotokan class, that he understands the order of the Pinan cutters as uh, Itosu wanted them. Uh, he says, however, Shotokan has them the opposite way around, the first two. So he said, how would you recommend teaching the first two kata without confusing a student in the Shotokan syllabus? So just to thrash out on that, for those that don't know, you've got these series of five kata that were designed by Anku Itosu. Uh, the one that Itosu himself labelled as Shodan, uh, Pinan Shodan, so um, safe from harm, fundamental level. And the, the next one, Pinan Nidan, in Shotokan are flipped over. Uh, and in, in quite a few other styles too, it's not uncommon for Pinan Nidan, which is the second one, to be taught first. And, and the reason for this, I think, is once you get away from the Bunkai, and there, I believe there's a, there's a strong order for sticking to Itosu's order, if you're breaking down the bunkai, 
But if you're just doing it on difficulty of performance of the solo cutter, it, it makes sense to start with Nidan because physically the, the, the solo perform is simpler. Now, I, I'm of the view that you should learn the Bunkai from Shodan because that builds into Nidan using the, the original order. But in Shotokan, they've flipped the two cutter over and they've also flipped the names over. You know? So I do know some good number of Shotokan people who uh, have kept the t- Shotokan terminology because um, obviously, you know, that's the world that you're operating in. So what I would call Pinan Shodan, they now call Hian Nidan. Uh, but they, nevertheless, they teach Hian Nidan first uh, when they're breaking down the Bunkai. So so th- that would be uh, one possible solution. Uh, the other way that, y- you know, you can do it, of course, is that you, uh, it depends how you structure the Bunkai element of your syllabus. So you could learn uh, uh, Hian uh, Shodan first, which would be Pinan Nidan in the other systems. You could learn that first, but uh, not do any Bunkai for it. Uh, then you learn uh, the next one, you know, which would be Hian Nidan, which would be Pinan Shodan, which you do learn the Bunkai for, and then you come back and study the Bunkai for the first one, you see. Uh, but, but, you know, because I think if you are following the Bunkai through, you do need to teach the Bunkai for Pinan Shodan or Hian Nidan first. Uh, and I don't think there's any way uh, uh, around that, really. Uh, now, of course, it just doesn't matter. It depends, you know, if he's part of a larger association, they may have a syllabus that demands the cutter are taught in the modern Shotokan order, in, in which case there's going to have to be some kind of fudge there when it comes to the bunkai. Uh, but if you're not, you know, if, if you're a little bit more independent or, yeah, then there's no reason why you couldn't, you keep the, the keep the, uh, terminology the same. Just learn he and Nidan first. You know, so you go, okay, this is the one that we're going to learn first. We're going to learn the Bunkai to it. Then we're going to learn he and Shodan, explain to the students that these names have been flipped and explain why. And I don't think there's, there's any kind of problem with that. Um, but yeah, but Bunkai wise, I believe the, um, Itosu gave us the order he gave us because of the Bunkai. Because we all acknowledge that as a, as a solo form, the difficulty of performance doesn't uh, um, reflect Itosu's order. However, when you break down the Bunkai, I, I can see a definite common uh, progression there. But you're not alone in this, Dustin, as well, because there's plenty of other groups, like, um, like Wado, for example, which is, you know, where I originally studied. Uh, in Wado, the first cutter I learnt was Pinan Nidan. Which would be your um, Hian Shodan, you know. So we'd learn, you know, the cut, the order we'd learn them in would be two one, <laughs> two one three four five. You see, uh, and then of course when I set up my own system, we and, and group, we flipped that over, so we went back to one two three four five. So yeah, it, it is something that needs addressed if you're doing a, a bunkai based uh, approach there, and um, if you're part of uh, other groups, then you, you may not have the full autonomy to to go back to the uh, original order, in which case, I, I think when it comes to the Bunkai, I wouldn't be teaching the Bunkai for Hian uh, Shodan until you've done the ones for Hian Nidan, which was originally Pinan Shodan, so um, that will make sense to the Shotokan people I have a feel that if you don't do Shotokan this, this question may have been a very uh, confusing one <laughs> In this week's episode of Martial Arts for Self-Defense, we visit Brazil to check out Capoeira. We cover everything you need to know about how to apply this martial art in real-world situations, including how to fit your drums into your tight white trousers, how to get bystanders to play musical instruments to create the right combative environment, how to de-escalate all violent situations into a dance-off, and more. Next week, we stay in Brazil to look at BJJ. We ask if the BJJ gi of choice marks you out as someone not to be messed with, or could you be mistaken for a confused Formula One driver who has wandered into the street while still wearing his night attire. Martial Arts for Self-Defense airs at 9pm Arctic time and is available to stream in all good record stores.
So the next one is from uh, Matthew from New Zealand. He said, what do you think the ideal approach to learning kata is? How well should you be able to perform the kata before moving into bunkai? How well should you be able to perform the kata in general? Uh, should kata be taught parallel to the bunkai? Should multiple kata be taught in parallel? Um, again, if your ideal doesn't match how you actually teach in applications, I would be interesting uh, to hear in how it differs and why. So great set of questions, those. So, and that there are alternate approaches. So I'm just going to explain, you know, how I do it, but we teach them side by side. One kata, we don't teach multiple kata at a time and they learn the uh, the kata and the associated bunkai drill side by side so give an example once they learn the first seven moves of Pinan Shodan, which is the first kata that we teach. We have a two-person drill that explains those seven moves. So they learn the seven moves of the kata and they learn the drill. Because what we found is uh, having that thorough understanding of the bunkai helps them to understand what the kata is representing, which improves the solo performance, which in turn improves the quality of the technique within the bunkai. So I know some people like to go, oh, we'll teach the, the kata in its entirety and then we'll do the bunkai. And th there are some times where I can see validity in that as we talked about earlier especially if you're having the teaching order imposed onto you by a syllabus you're not in complete control of uh, some people of course do it the other way around where they learn all the bunkai and then they do the kata right uh, we found doing it side by side is the way to do it so uh, white belts don't do any kata uh, then when our ninth cues they learn the first half of pinan shodan and they learn the four drills that go with that for the next grade up after that they then learn um, the second half of the kata so they have to be able to do the entire kata and they learn the four two-person drills that go along with the second half and that, that's kind of how we progress so we never teach kata side by side you know so it's not like the learning uh, Pinan Shodan and Pinan Nidan at the same time. We don't do that. When they've got one cutter down and they've got the uh, bunkai down for that cutter, then we start on the next one. So we learn cutter slower than most. So typically, by time students are getting the Dan grades, um, which in, for us, I'd say is about an average of eight years, something like that. They'll know the five Pinan cutters and uh, Nahanshi, uh, Techish Shodan. But they, they know them. It, it's not just superficially they can walk through them and make them look, look pretty. They, they know them. And in terms of how well they should be able to perform it, I mean, I'm a grand believer in good quality solo cutter because that's your muscle control. That's your ability to control your weapon. Your body is your weapon. So you need to be able to wield it well. So we like to see good quality cutter. Now, I, I think in some modern karateka's thinking, there's, there's a, uh, which I've never quite been able to understand. But there's this kind of disconnect between the practical application of it and the cutter. So as if you have to choose one or the other. You know, you either choose good quality cutter or, or you choose functional application, but you can't have both. Uh, which is nonsense. It's utter nonsense. What we should have is really high quality solo performance, which gets connected to a strong understanding of the cutter. Now, one of the things, I, when I watch my guys do cutter, because they understand the bunk eye well, they fight their way through it. I mean, it, it looks... It, it's got a real, uh, it looks sharp and it looks dynamic, but it's got an edge to it. You know, you know, it's functional. You know, they believe in it and you know that they mean it. Whereas I have seen other people, um, do kata where I go, yeah, it was pretty. You know, uh, yeah, nice. You know, it, it moved well, but, but, but it, it doesn't create that visceral action. I always think when, when someone does kata well, um, it should be a scary thing to behold. You know, you look at that efficiency of movement and, and, and you can see the, the, the belief and the intent. It's got an emotional element, uh, um, because they're visualizing the, the, 
the two-person drills that, that, that they've done. So, yeah, great believer in good quality solo kata. Uh, but, again, it should be strongly tied towards the, the, the bunkai. And my view is that you teach the kata and the bunkai side by side. And uh, except in other situations, other models may work. And at the end of the day, so long as you've got a good quality kata and you understand what you're doing with it... I mean, ultimately, it doesn't matter, but that's the way that we found that it, it works best for us. So the next question is from Carl Martin, where he asks, he goes, do you think we can dissect karate too much? Uh, by which he means we move away from the uh, original purposes of the technique, or we read far too much into a technique. You know, Is there such a thing as too much in their dissection or analysis for application? The, the, the quote that's jumping to mind on this is Einstein, right? where uh, Albert Einstein said, we should make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. So, so th- there comes a point where things can become counterproductive. So you, you simplify things to the point where uh, you're no longer accurately representing what it is you're trying to explain. Now, when it comes to the analysis of the kata, I think we can cross that line too, in, in either direction. So so one thing is, we don't analyse enough. So you end up with 3K karate. We don't understand what's going on with the kata. We don't understand the combative principles. We don't understand alternative ways of uh, applying those combative principles. We, you know, we, we don't seek to internalize them and express them through live practice because we just do the kata with no analysis. So that, that's problematic, right? Uh, the other extreme is that analysis paralysis, where we just spend all of our time thinking about, well, maybe the move could do this, or maybe it could do that. And as a result, you're never practicing the, the application of it. Now, as I said uh, a couple of years ago in the Karate 3.0 podcast, I think one of the things that Karate needs to, to do is start saying, okay, this is the application. So, and I believe every group should have those, you know, and the group down may, down the road may have a different set of core bunk or applications, but for my students, they know exactly what the move represents for every single movement we do. So if they go, what's the application for this? We have a the application. Now, in order to ensure that I'm second-guessed, what we have is that the higher grades, they have to pr- produce secondary applications, a small number. So they have to kind of reanalyze the cat and, you know, maybe Ian's got it wrong, you know. Uh, and the idea of that is then if they believe that I have, then when they go on to teach, they can... Uh, what was their secondary application becomes their primary. So I want them to have that ability to uh, to analyse. But the danger is, and you see this, like uh, some groups approach bunkai where they go, yes, you have to do bunkai for gradings. Uh, the students have to tell us what the movement's for. Well, that's not the way it should work. The teacher should tell the student this is what the movement is for. This is what it represents. This is the drill to practice it. This is the underlying combative principles. This is how we drill it on the pads. This is how we drill it live. We shouldn't go, he's a cutter, you work it out. You know, because because you're the instructor. You're supposed to be instructing. So, so for me, uh, can we dissect karate too much? Uh, yes, we can. If the dissection has got to the point where it means uh, we're no longer looking at the application of the movement, uh, so we're stuck in that endless cycle of an, of analysing, that that that's not good. But it's also possible to to not analyse enough, uh, where people just look at the cutter and go, "Okay, yeah, that'll it. We'll, we'll just do that, or we'll we'll just do the cutter to make it look pretty." And that that's not enough either. You need to understand what it represents as well. So um, we've got to catch that balance. So we've got to dissect uh, enough, but not too much. Tai Chi for the Internet Age. We understand that people no longer want to do something that takes years to learn and ages to do. 
Our new turbo cheese system takes just 15 seconds to perform and involves nothing more than wildly flailing your arms around while hyperventilating. This is not for old people in the park. This is for people who want to be shot with a taser after being incorrectly identified as a violent and disturbed individual. Do it anywhere. Terrify neighbours. Terrify colleagues in the office. The new Turbo Chi system. Get your chi on. So next question is from Joe O'Neill. He said, what are your thoughts on the function of Hangetsu Dachi? Uh, turning the feet in and then uh, the knees and dropping the weight can be bad for knee health. Uh, is it a looser forward stance that allows greater hip range of motion while providing stability? Is it something akin to a longer boxer stance or a lengthened Sanchin Dachi? I think all of those are valid options there um so for those that don't know so uh, you've got sanshindashi sishandachi uh, depending on which style you are where the, the toes are pointed in slightly or should be slightly and the feet are staggered so you've got one foot in front of the other one uh, in the uh, like okinawan styles it, it tends to be more or less the heels of the front foot are in line with the toes of the back foot uh in shotokan so they rename uh, uh, sishan or seishan they rename it, rename it hangetsu the stance is longer as is typically the case with shotokan stances they tend to get made a little bit bigger so um so the first one is you shouldn't i, I don't believe you should be ever doing anything in kata that's unnatural to the point where it's causing damage to your health so arbitrarily pulling the feet in a long dis uh, a long way just like an unnatural angle and dropping the weight down onto it i don't believe we should do that but bad for your knees so been, uh, the feet pointing slightly inwards can help because it means that when you rotate your hip your knee your hip and your foot are all pointing in the direction so there's no kind of cross forces across the knee or the ankle or the hip so it helps develop powerful movement and you don't get that thing of the the, the joints like a shearing force uh, across the joint so uh, it, even in, you see that sometimes with sishandachi or santindachi uh, even nahanshidachi for that matter uh, the feet pulled in way too far so toes should be in slightly so that when you rotate the hip the hip and the knee are moving in the in, in the, the the same direction in terms of its functional use uh, if you're looking at the the sanchin or the you have stability there and it is great for uh, hip movement with with the sishandachi in particular because the feet pointing inwards uh, allow that rotation so the back foot enables the, the hip to rotate in but the front foot there it prevents the hip from over rotating so we find this to be a, a really useful stance to teach the students to uh, generate that dynamic hip movement which they can then do from lots of other positions now in hangetsu dachi which is like an elongated version of it uh, it does exactly what joe says it does it, 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 a looser forward stance is not a bad thing because it does allow greater hip range of motion because you haven't got the back leg lock and you have the weight dropped so you do have that uh, that stability it's like with all stances as well you know they have a a, a combative function and then it's up to us to ensure that we use it appropriately and of course in application the stances are not fixed they're fluid they're positions we quickly hit so it may be that you know you've got hold of somebody you drop your weight so you're stable so they're not able to simply pull a push off your feet you've got those toes pointing in that little bit which allows that strong hip rotation that strong base so you can develop a strong hit uh, while maintaining that uh, that stability so i would say uh, that's you know it, it's its main function so all that stuff some it's always difficult to describe these things verbally um, but you know, i hope there's, there's there's some of that and of course in joe's question i think there's the questions he asks uh, shows that he has a really good understanding of it i think 
So next one is from uh, Mary Stevens. She said, what is the most unlikely piece of bunk guy you've ever been uh, taught or heard? Uh, and uh, um, yeah, I can know exactly what this one is. So the uh, in Kishanku or Kanku Dai, there's a movement where you turn uh, the fist and the open hand, kind of clip the knee before you drop down, right? So uh, the way I see that is, you know, controlling the head, dropping a knee in either to the, the groin or the spine, depending on which way around you've got the enemy, and then dropping down to tackle him either from the front or the back, depending on how you want to apply that movement. So the movement's got a s- solid uh, functional uh, use, you know. But the most unlikely one I've ever heard was uh, there was someone who uh, commented, uh, this is in a book that I read, uh, that it was to make a noise in order to scare the enemy. So if I can just... now. If you're of a sensitive nature, you might want to turn the, uh, the the MP3 player or the radio down now. Listen to this. Terrifying, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that was utterly ridiculous. And the, a fairly funny story about this as well. So years ago, I'm in Canada and I'm, I'm uh, having a, a meal with uh, some fellow karateka, uh, one of which is uh, Mike Rust. So if you're listening, hi, Mike. Uh, and, and Mike Rust asked me, he goes, you know, the same question. What's the weirdest bit of bunk I have ever heard? So I said, oh, it's this one when the fist and the hand hit and da 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 da. And he kind of smiled and went, um, he says, it's not blowing into a bag and then making it go pop, is it? <laughs> I go, you know, that would be better because that would make a more uh, frightening, air quotes, frightening noise. Yeah. So that one, that, that, that was, yeah, unbelievably bad. Uh, and, and, and Mary has a, a, another question where she asks, um, when researching the Pinan Kata, uh, what did I find the toughest move to interpret? Pinan Kata, I've, I've been teaching them the same way for decades. So it's hard. I, I'm struggling to think back to that point where uh, I, I was um, analysing them. But I think uh, I would probably say it was the uh, the movement before the jump, the one where you're not looking in that direction. So with, with that one, you know, so there's, a, there's a, a punch in air quotes where you're looking the other way. And I remember, yeah, this is a bizarre movement. Why am I looking away from where I'm hitting and then jumping? Uh, now, in the version of the Kata I do, the stance at that point is fairly long, you know, um, not massively long but fairly long and then i remember seeing the shotokan version of uh you know hian godan which is a much shorter stance and as soon as i saw that version i went it's a shoulder throw because their movement looks exactly like a shoulder throw and then once i'd saw it i went ah it's a shoulder throw right so if the guy's on the ground what's the next movement and then the following uh Gedan jujuki i, I recognize that as a shoulder dislocation technique i already knew so and i point to that example this is why studying what the other styles do can be so useful because sometimes that alternate systems will express the same movement in a subtly different way. We go, ah, I kind of see what that is. So yeah, I remember that one, the idea of punching when I wasn't looking was, was a strange one. And then as soon as I saw the stance, yeah, it, it's not a punch. It's a, it's a throw. It's a shoulder throw. Uh, and then as soon as that connection was made, that whole sequence kind of dropped into place. But uh, yeah, but that would be the, the one I think that was, I, I, rem- I remember struggling with that to understand what that was all about. So the next one, we have a question from a gentleman in Dubai who was asked to remain anonymous. But he said, um, he said, how do you know which interpretation of the bunkai is the right one? 
Uh, do you have a wish to standardise Katabunkai one day? Uh, for, for, across the port, the board, no. I have absolutely no desire to have all karateka looking in the kata the same way. I don't believe that would necessarily be healthy. But in terms of standardised within my group, we've, we've done that. We, we For every single movement that we do, in every single kata that we do, we have a primary bunkai for that, which for all intents and purposes is the one for, for for us in terms of whether other people would want to see that as the one for them well that's up to them so i know in some cases uh the, the pinan drills that we've presented in the dvds and the downloads and stuff some people have taken them and run with them and they, they do the exact same drills that we do which is great if they, they work for them but if they wanted to do their own interpretation of that form that's fine too i just think within any given group you need to know what the applications are for you. In terms of how do you know which is the the, the right one? Well, it, I always you know it's got to fit the kata. Uh, it's got to be in accord with the underlying principles of kata as expressed by the past masters, and it's got to work. It, it's got to have a functional application. Uh, if it's ticking all three of those boxes, then it's it's right. You know, and I've likened this before to like scientific theories. You know, a valid scientific theory says uh, we can explain all the data and we can make predictions uh, based on 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 the, on the theory. Uh, now there might be competing theories, but if they all explain the data and they can all make very accurate predictions, then we would say, okay, that those are right. And and I think it's the same with the bunkai. If if you've got a bit of bunkai that can explain the way the cutter is, that's in accord with what the old master said about cutter, so that's another bit of information, and it can make predictions crucially it works if you have a bit of bunkai that does that then it's right it might not be the same way that i do it because the way i do it might be right in a different way so yep yeah, that, that's how it is so how do you know which is the right one i think that's the key test you know it works it fits the kata it's in line with what the old masters told us about the principles of kata uh, and do i wish to standardize it i already have done have done for decades my, my, my group has standardized bunkai within it but i wouldn't want to kind of standardize across the piece for everybody i, I don't believe that would be that dictator approach never tends to end well i don't think so next question is from mark fagan he says what would be your go-to technique of all the bunkai you've practiced assuming we've passed the uh, avoidance and awareness stages so you know we're, we're in fight Do you know dead simple palm heel you know that, that's it there's loads of cutters with palm heels in and various ways of clearing the limbs uh, for, for for me you know that once it kind of all kicks off and it's in that stage get the limb out the way i'd be smashing palm heels into heads you know it's a very simple technique which is why it appears everywhere i just i, I like it i find it super effective i throw it hard i throw it with confidence so in that self-defense application that would be it when it's all kicked off uh, that would be me clear limbs of locate the head with the uh, other hand and then strike palm heel with the, uh, the, the the striking hand that would be it for me so the next question is from Dylan Tucker. He said, I've heard it mentioned by you and others on the forum that each kata uh, constitute a complete fighting system in their own right. Could you expand on this? What makes them complete? And how should that influence our interpretation of Bunkai? So uh, way back... Uh, there is a podcast called uh, How a Cat Records a Complete System or something like that. So there's, there is a, a, a podcast back in the archives that breaks all this down. But uh, essentially, the, and you see this just like in the Chinese systems, it's quite common 
that that Chinese system will have a form or maybe a long form and a short form. You know, it's quite common. So what's happened within karate is we've collected together all of these forms that originated from uh, systems, complete fighting systems. Uh, and so we've got a lot of these things. That we, and so we tend to think of them as part of the system rather than a, a system in and of themselves. So keeping it really basic and, and bearing in mind, like I say we have done a, a full podcast on this, so I don't want to kind of repeat that. But what you've got in the cutter is the cutter give you uh, a series of drills and techniques which illustrate underlying combative principles. Uh, they're not saying this is the only way you can do this movement. They're saying this is a good example of the kind of combative principle we wish you to understand. Once you've got sufficient examples of this combative principle, you can start to look to apply it in different ways. And eventually you get to the point where you've internalized those combative principles. So you fight in accordance with them. You give some quick examples you position yourself tactically you control the enemy effectively you use your body weight well you break balance well that these are all principle-based things once you've got that down you'll express it freely so you've got a, a complete fighting system so the analogy i, I used it in the bunkai jitsu book way back in 2002 uh, is just you know the uh, oak tree and the acorn if you've got an oak tree Think of that as your fighting system. So that, that's, that's everything that this fighting system has within it. All the different, you know, throws, takedowns, locks, chokes, strikes. This fighting system's massive. And they then go, right, I need to encapsulate this. Well, it's no good if you try and encapsulate the oak tree with the oak tree itself. You say, okay, what's the essence of this? Well, you go, the acorn is. So if you want someone to have their own oak tree, you don't give them the oak tree. So look, here's an acorn. Right, so he's the cutter. Go away, study it, nurture it, understand it, and that in turn will uh, grow into its own um, its own oak tree. So, in terms of what's complete, is because uh, th there are only so many combative principles, and at a certain point, you start to realise that all of the cutter are just showing different expressions of a common set of combative principles, because there only are so many. It's like Funakoshi said this, he said, once you understand one technique, you will realise its close relationship to all other techniques. Because, you know, the, the, the combative principles are there. So if you get beyond thinking of kata as a bag of tricks, and, and it's important that we do that, and you start to see it as examples of combative principles, and you learn uh, how to freely apply those combative principles, you understand how each one represents its own uh, um, its own fighting uh, system. And of of course, you know, bear in mind what we're talking about here is we're talking um, for for Kata, we're talking about non-consensual criminal violence. So we're talking explosive three or four seconds of chaos until one person normally gets dominance. You know, so um, you don't need uh, like a, like a thousand techniques there. You know what I mean? Is what what you need is you need a solid set of core motions. Uh, that you will apply in accord with good com combative principles. So if you learn one kata fully and in depth, you you're good for your self-defense purposes. Beyond that, we're doing it for the, the academic interest of it. The next one's a question from Stuart Gray. He says, I want to create my own cutter. What is the process required to put one together? So it's pretty much the reverse there. So what you do is you start with what combative principles do I wish to convey? Uh, what examples am I going to use to convey those combative principles? 
uh, and then you, you've got two-person drills that give you good examples of those combative principles. Then you do the two-person drill on your own, and you put them end-to-end, -end and you have a kata. That's essentially the way that it works. So it's something I've, I've done recently with uh, Motorboost 12 drills. So I, I've been working on Motorboost 12 drills. I've been breaking them down. I've been analyzing the principles within them. And then it occurred to me, I should really have a cutter to put all these together. So that, that's what I did. I, I just simply created a cutter from those two-person drills by uh, doing my solo reinterpretation of those of those two person drills so so that would be it you know um what is it you want the cutter to convey um in terms of combative principles what do you feel uh, what techniques give a good or drills give a good illustration of those combative principles and then you just you know enact that in solo form there's certain rules you should adhere to as well that are quite common in cutter so combative as well as structural so typically you know the angles in the cutter represent the angles you you, you take relative to the enemy um, there's those kind of things that you might want to uh, factor in there as well but you just give it a go you know this is the thing is cutters weren't they're not divinely inspired they're created by men there's no reason at all why we in the modern age can't create our own cutter too and, and you will learn a lot from doing it too you'll you'll get insights into your own cutters that you, you may find uh, useful the all-new mma pretenders kit includes a tap-out style t-shirt with fake padded muscles and realistic looking sleeve tattoos Talk your way through any fight with our state-of-the-art made-up submission names. Bluff the uninitiated with made-up names such as the U-Bend, the Badger Choke, the Three-Quarter Wallaby Guard, the Side-Naked Tendon Twister with Climbing Ivy Leg Control, the Atomic Nut Punch, and more. At the end of every UFC fight, we will email you a convincing breakdown so you can tell friends, colleagues, and strangers in bars how you would have won. Of course, it's vital that you don't actually fight, so we provide an authentic-looking doctor's note. For just $10 more, we'll add a note from your mum. And for just $20 on top of that, you will get an authentic-looking Liechtenstein Athletic Commission ban due to superhuman levels of naturally occurring testosterone. All-new MMA Pretenders Kit. Order now! So the next one's from Gus Rogers. He says, of all your flow drills that you've created for Kata, which flow is your favourite? Uh, as Azeen has the smoothest transitions from one application to the next. Um, by nature of a flow drill, it should have a smooth transition from one technique to the next. But in terms of my favourite, it's not necessarily just for the flow of it. It's because it's my favourite Kata. Is uh, Nahanshi uh, Kata. Uh, love that form. Just so much you can do with it. And as someone who travels a lot, I love it. I always say it's my travel Kata. I can do it anywhere. So, uh, you know, hotel rooms, all kinds of places, you know, I might not have enough room to do Kashanku, but I can do, uh, do Nahanshi. So it's, it's my, my favorite form. And I have one two person drill, which runs through the applications from, or the chord applications from the first move of the cut to the last move of the cut. I find that a really enjoyable one to do. So it would be my uh, complete two person fold drill for Nahanshi. Uh, again, which, which, and, and there's others. I've got loads of Nanchi flow drills, ones for the trapping elements alike or the clinching elements. We've got the semi-live flow drills, which mean they, they vary depending on what the partner does. But, you know, if you force me to pick one, um, I have one where we start with the first move of the cutter and we walk all the way through to the end of the cutter, um, flowing from move to move. So a lot of you've been at the seminars will know that drill, but that's my favorite, favorite flow drill. So next question is from uh, Harry Gilling. He said, when was the last time you thought, wow, that was a great move. I never saw that in the cutter. And what was it and when? 
so I, there's two ways I can read that question, so I'm going to answer it in both ways. So the first one is, what move did you see that made you go, wow, that isn't in Qatar? And I was recently sent a video clip by a friend of mine where a guy was getting thrown, did a counter to the throw, which ended him flipping the person who was throwing him to the floor, where he ended up in Jujigitami putting on a cross lock. It did the rounds via Facebook a couple of months ago, so you may have seen it. Very elaborate. Uh, yeah, I can't, um, I've never seen anyone pull that off live, but it was like, wow, that's slick. So it was a, um, a throw counter that ended up um, throwing the person to the ground, ending up in Jujikatami. Some of you may have seen it. I was like, yeah, wow, I love that. I had to watch it four or five times to work out what was going on. Uh, in terms of the other way you can read the question is seeing, wow, that's a great move. I never noticed that in Kata before. Uh, I think for me, the, the last time was a few years ago. Uh, when I was analysing Unsu Kata, uh, the bit where you kind of turn and pivot on one leg, you do like a kind of Sotoro uh, Uchi, depending on how you label it, with the knee up and then you drop into a Gaku as you turn. There was just that sudden moment where it went boom, okay, that's an Uchi Mata. It's a variation on an Uchi Mata. Um, so I grab a partner, I do it, it works superbly. So that was one of those moments where the Kata spoke to me, where it hadn't spoken to me before. So that was like, yeah, okay, wow, that's a cool way to throw a guy. Um, I, and I'll see it in the and I can't believe I didn't see it. So that was yeah the Unsu move, and that was maybe maybe two or three years ago. So the next one's uh, from Dylan Tucker, and he says, uh, "What's your least favorite kata that's part of your curriculum or that you regularly practice, and why?" I I, I don't really have what I would class as a least favorite kata on the curriculum because uh, if I didn't like it, I, I wouldn't practice it, or if I didn't see value in it. So uh, what I can say in, in terms of the ones I see the most value in for me and mine, we mentioned earlier it's the Pinans and Naihanchi, uh, and then it's, you know, Kushanku, uh, Sishan, uh, Chinto and Pasai. They're our kind of core cutters for us, pretty much up to uh, fourth down. We have some optional extra cutters as well. So we have uh, uh, Niseishis, uh, Rohais, Wanshus. So if you're saying least favourite, they're probably the ones we place the least emphasis on, but that's not because I see less value in them it's just the way we structure the syllabus uh, so out of the ones that we have as optional cut there the one i'd be most happy to get rid of is probably row high uh, or itosu row high showdown uh, I like the kata, so it's not that, you know, uh, but, but I, I just, it's one that we, we have because I find it interesting because of the crane influence, but I, I don't see it being as valuable combatively as, as the others. That's, that's not to say, Intrinsically, it's less valuable. It, it, that's in terms of, because we're looking at the cat as a collective, which one you could pull out doing the least damage. So it's probably Itosu Rohai Showdown. Uh, but I still love it. Because <laughs> uh, if I didn't love it, 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 it wouldn't be there. But you just say least favourite, so I guess that, that would have to be it. So the last question we have in this section is from Noor Balau, uh, and he said, Mwashiyuki is found in many kata. Uh, what is your um, thoughts on its application in real self-defense scenarios? Uh, so, you now again, it's, this is one of the things I've written really interesting, because if you look at like um, uh, like Marote Mwashiyuki, that like kind of two-handed circular blocking thing, you know, wax on, wax off style movement, uh, it's very common in the Naha kata. It's not so common in the Shurite kata. In fact, you could argue that's one of the key distinctions 
between the two systems. That the Surete line has a lot of shutukis, a lot of knife hands in them. Whereas the Nahakata don't have any uh, shutos or many shutos, but they do have a lot of the Mawashiyukis. Essentially, it's because they do the same job, I think. They're, they're both good at clearing and trapping a limb in order to open them up for strikes. In the case of the shuto, it's the edge of the hand or the forearm into the neck. In the case of the Mawashiyuki, uh, it's a, like a hit palm hilt to the ribs and a palm hilt to the base of the skull. Um, so in terms of its application, I, I think it's best used proactively rather than reactively. And that's simply because proactive techniques work better than reactive, because you're setting the agenda rather than trying to respond to the enemy's actions. So, uh, so Mawashiyuki, uh, it works well when you're firing shots, the enemy brings up an arm to try and defend himself in some way, to put a limb between uh, your weapon and, and the target on their body. You use Mawashiyuki to strip it out of the way, and then you impact and then continue to um, impact until they're either incapacitated or you can flee. Of course, the same movement can be used defensively. That the enemy's limb comes towards you, you redirect and move. But... Uh, by definition, reactive stuff, the chance of it working is, is far lower because you're reacting to the enemy's movement rather than kind of setting the agenda yourself. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of its use, what's it there for? It clears limbs out of the way. Uh, in terms of the best way to do it, pry, apply it proactively rather than reactively. Of course, you've got to practice both. You know what I mean? But the, the preference is always to be on the front foot, is to be the hammer, not the anvil. So in this section, we're discussing some of my uh, likes and dislikes, if if we can call it that. So the first one is uh, Matthew from New Zealand. He said, who are some of your favourite modern pragmatic karateka? Uh, I was loath to include this one, but I felt I should. Uh, the reason I didn't want to include it was I'm bound to miss people out, and I don't want anyone to be feel uh, offended or overlooked if, if I forget about them, because the wonderful thing is there are so many people doing such good stuff now. You know, I, I did a, a video I put out a, maybe a month or so ago where I was looking at uh, Instagram in the morning while having my morning coffee. And uh, I just uh, I was looking at, oh, God, that's a good drill. Oh, I like that application. I like what they've done there. Oh, they've communicated that well. And so I, I felt obliged, you know, obligated to do a video just saying, this is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful that, that modern pragmatic karate has so many... Uh, enthusiastic and able practitioners. It, this has to be good for karate itself. So if I start listing individuals, I'm sure to miss some out, right? Uh, but I'm gonna, I'll give it a go, right? So, so I, I think of, uh, uh, Peter Constein, obviously, is the godfather of, uh, uh, British practical martial arts. One of my own teachers, he has to be in there, obviously. Uh, I've got Chris Wilder and Lawrence Kane, both friends of mine from the US. I love the stuff that they're doing. Uh, I think of the guys on the forum uh, that regularly post videos up there. So Andy Allen of Applied Shotokan's doing some wonderful stuff. You've got Les Bubka. Uh, lo love the stuff that Les does. Jeb Childs shares lots of really good stuff on there. Um, you've got uh, uh, Christian Wiedewart in Germany. He's a friend of mine's doing some wonderful stuff. Uh, I've got the uh, the Inner Circle, the Bunkai Jitsu Network, 
work in Germany as well. Um, uh, a cast, a Nick, Axel, Axel, uh, a Sven, a uh, 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 Max, Willie, all those guys doing wonderful things. Um, um, I got, we've got uh, Timo and Jens in Finland that are doing wonderful things. Uh, in, in, we've got the Wombat Association, <laughs> you know, like uh, uh, Fleming and Jan up in Denmark are doing great stuff. You know, it's just there's so many good people in in so many places that I, I feel uh, loath to try and make a definitive list because I'm bound to get it wrong. Here in the UK, you've got like uh, John Johnson. I'm, I'm doing a seminar with. Love what John's doing. Uh, you've got uh, Lee Sims. I'm doing a seminar with this year. Lee Taylor's doing wonderful things. Uh, Andrew Reeston, uh, Andy Kidd. There's just uh, there's so many people doing such good stuff. You know, it's it's impossible to list them all really. So yeah. <laughs> so if you want recommendations, it's slightly difficult because it's just it's just everywhere. I tell you something though. For people who want um, one of the things that I have tried to do over the years is to use my forum as a springboard for people who like uh, the same kind of stuff that we like. So if you're someone listening to this who maybe haven't got a, a, a public profile, but you feel your material is something you'd like to share, maybe pop along to the forum and post the video links and stuff, because you'll find there's quite a, um, a strong community there. Oh, God, Noah Legel's another one. I've just jumped to my seat. I'm totally about to miss people. Uh, but there's some loads of good people uh, on the forum there that are contributing excellent material. Uh, and there's no reason at all why you can't join them. And then what I try and do is, you know, via Facebook and Instagram, uh, the stuff that I'll, I'll, you know, that people share there, I share it again to try and kind of you know, like float that community and build it as, as best I can. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's people listening to this who have some excellent ideas and things who they need to be sharing. And as I'm thinking this, I'm thinking of a, I could let, list off another dozen, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop while I'm behind. <laughs> Um, so yeah, loads of good pragmatic karateka out there in the modern age, and that's got to be a positive thing, right? And uh, next question is from Ali Whittick. He says, uh, "What are your karate goals for the next decade?" So obviously, for my own uh, training, I want to you know keep keep improving, keep learning. You know, it's an on ongoing commitment. Uh, I would like to uh, further the pragmatic karate community. I think we're in a strong position, but I want to see that grow and grow and grow. So I want to play my part in helping uh, that to happen and supporting people who are helping make that happen too. Within regards to the associations that I'm members of, the World Combat Association, the British Combat Association, the British Combat Karate Association, uh, I would like to see those continue to, to grow. Uh, in terms of, uh, for like in the UK, I'm struggling to think of anybody in the UK who's a, a pragmatic karateka who's not affiliated to the British Combat Karate Association. So that's, that's a great thing. So we're all banding together to help one another. And the, the WCA is starting to do that overseas as well. Got members everywhere. So I, I want to see that that, that going uh, too. That'd be nice to continue that that, that building. So yeah, I've got lots of goals. Books as well, of course. But I keep saying this, it's been a while since I got a book out. And I've got a few that are half done that I've, I would eventually like to get uh, to get in, in print. So uh, yeah, because I'm, like, I'm 50 years old now, right? So by the time the next decade's out, I'm, I'm nearly 50. So when the next year's out, I'm going to be nearly 60. You know, and I, I, I'm going to keep going until I drop, obviously. But at some point, I, I maybe don't want to be getting up in two in the morning to get on a plane to travel and get back four days later at 2 a.m. in the morning again, you see. So uh, I, over the next decade, I want to really kind of do everything I can um, to turbocharge the pragmatic karate community so when I finally kind of ease off that little bit I can look back and go you know yeah I did my part you know karate was good to me and hopefully I've been good for it so the next 10 years I really want to try and solidify that 
So the next one's from uh, Simon Sutherland. He said, uh, are there things that you might change in the way you train or teach in the coming years, and, and why? There are, but I don't know what they are. Because <laughs> uh, when I'm exposed to what I feel is, that's a good idea, or, uh, or, or that's a good way of achieving a, a given aim, then I adopt it pretty much you know, immediately. Once I've got my head around it, I go, right, we're doing that going forwards. And, and the guys I've got around me in my own dojo are of a similar mindset. You know, If we can make things better, that we do. So it's certain that we will change things. I can't imagine within the next coming years there'll be nothing new that we're exposed to. It's bound to happen. So there'll be certain things that we go, okay, that's a good idea. That's a better way to train. That's a better way to communicate it. Um, but I don't know what they are until they appear. Um, because if I, if I was aware of them, I would have already changed, if that makes sense. In terms of the teaching as well, that's something where I'm in a constant process of self-analysis. Um, so I'm, I'm, I get to teach a lot. You know, I've got my home dojo when I travel as well. So um, whenever I finish teaching a seminar or a session, I'm always thinking, okay, what went well? What could have been better? How can I make that better? So there are things that I've, I've changed in the way that I teach or communicate things over the over the years because I know they get better results. So um, in terms of training, that's the same thing as well. For my own personal training, this when I'm introduced to new training methods, new new ideas, new scientific studies, again I, I'm keen to ad- adapt those. One thing I can be pretty confident of is that obviously, um, um, you know. I'll be in my 50s pretty soon uh, and I've already slowly had to accept that I'm not 20 <laughs> so I, I can still train hard but my body sometimes takes a little bit longer to recover and if I'm injured I need to listen now I can't just plow through it because otherwise those injuries just persist and persist and persist um, so I, I, I will probably change the way I train going forward to get to reflect the fact I have an aging body so you know still got plenty of life in me yet you know but uh, simple things for example um with with the weight training i I don't push for personal bests on lifts anymore in the way that i did because i realized doing so i run the risk of ripping a shoulder or something like that and then again it's months and months and months before it heals so yeah invariably you know having to adapt to the march of times one of those things so yeah i hope that of some interest to you simon so the next question is from uh, Gareth Piper, and he said, uh, Dojo Mata having an ongoing contest, so Siyanagi or Uchi Mata, go. So that's um, uh, shoulder throw versus inner thigh throw, for those who are not familiar with the, the Japanese. Dead easy for me, that's Siyanagi. Um, when I was training in judo, my judo instructor, uh, Mike Liptrot, told me that Siyanagi would be my throw. And I wasn't convinced. Uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd, shoulder throw, I understand it, but I'm not sure it'll be my throw. Anyway, he got me working that throw, and it became a throw that I loved and still love to this day. So, so Mike looked at my body type and went, "This will be the throw for you." I also I remember uh, asking Mike about Uchimata, asking him, "Could he go through it with me?" And he smiled and went, uh, "What's the point of you learning Uchimata? You'll never throw anyone with those legs, because <laughs> my legs are fairly short, for, you know." So, and, and you know, and I said, "You know, I'd like to be able to teach it properly." And he said, "Okay, that's a fair enough answer." So, I think we spent. 20 minutes going through the basic mechanics of Uchimata compared to the hours and hours I spent work, working Siyanagi. Now, Murray, who you'll know from the books and DVDs, uh, Murray's you know, different, right? So, uh, Murray's quite tall, got long legs. Uchimata works great for him. He'll catch somebody with it every lesson. But Siyanagi's not for him, you see. So, for me, it's real simple, Siyanagi, because it works better for me.
Todd Reynolds uh, asked the question. He goes, "How can I get you to do more podcasts?" <laughs> do you know, the, the thing is, I, I, um, I, I say I've got literally, I've got, I've got three, four, five conversations recorded. Uh, what I, I struggle with at the moment, it's, it's the time because I'm traveling so much and teaching so much. Time where I can sit down and edit is is difficult. Uh, so I need to find more time to do that because because I, I love doing the podcast and I, and I know people like them. So I want to get more out, and there are ones waiting to go out. I just need to find the time to do it. So I've said this before on the podcast. One of the things that I've got to start being strict on is um, a lot of my time is taken up replying to emails. Uh, and now that, that, that obviously that's if people have been to seminars and they want to follow up question that's great uh, there's people you know, asking you know, making inquiries about arranging seminars and all that kind of stuff you know obviously you know you have to respond to those emails and I will respond to all those emails but I sometimes find that people email me out the blue to ask technical questions and, and if that person's reached out to me they've taken the time to do that so I feel I should be polite enough to write back an email but what i sometimes find i'm doing is i'm just going you can find it here you know so you know people will ask questions and i've done like a podcast on it or written an article in it so if they type my name and the topic of their inquiry they would find that information now if they then went i've read this article or this book or this podcast and i've got this question then then that's great uh, but i think one of the things i'm gonna have to start being a bit more brutal about is which emails i choose to respond to which I don't want to do, but in order to serve the most number of people in the most efficient way, I think if, if I'm going to have to stop answering the emails that are just like generic kind of questions where people haven't hit Google, uh, because that would probably buy me four or five hours a week, uh, during which I could obviously get a podcast recorded and out. So, so you know, I, I want to help as many people as possible, but I, I think I am going to have to start just sending generic answers back saying please Google this, and then if there's any questions, email back. So uh, I do want to do more podcasts, and I've got loads recorded. And the people I've recorded them with have been so patient too. You know, It's just finding the time to do it, but we'll get there. And on a related one, uh, we've got Juha uh, from Finland. He asks, he goes, I'm still waiting on a new book. Will there be one? Well, yep, there's two or three books half written. Uh, I just need to find the time to write them. On the positive side on that front, I have put time aside where I intend to do writing. So I've got months off the seminar um, circuit uh, planned up where, where those months will be free and during that time I want to do some uh, writing and hopefully get uh, caught up to it. So yes, there will be new books. Again, it's just uh, a matter of you know, only being one of me and only so many hours in the day, unfortunately. Next question is from Luke Liberty. He said, more of a personal question, but why karate? What is it that uh, draws you to it? Uh, is it purely because you believe it's the best combative system, the most complete, the most effective, or do you feel it offers you something personally that's more than just a fighting system? Uh, in terms of, you know, do I believe karate is the best combative system? I, I, I wouldn't say that. I believe it's the best one for me because I, I find that it gives me everything I need. It covers a self-defense element very well. Uh, it, it's got uh, enough of a fighting component that I find that enjoyable and interesting uh, it has longevity built into it so it's something I can practice uh, in the long term uh, it has a sense of uh, history and tradition which might not be important to some but it definitely makes it more interesting to me so there's lots of things that karate gives me that other systems may not now of course for other people the 
best combative system for them would be something that appeals. Because anything, like anything else, you get good at the ones you keep doing. So there needs to be something about that system that appeals and that will keep you doing it. So I recently did a video on YouTube uh, called What's the Best Martial Art? And I uh, tried to identify the things that I thought people should consider when choosing what's the best martial art for them. Uh, and as part of doing that, I, I um, also uh, talked about why karate fulfills those various criteria for me. So if anyone's interested in looking at why I like karate so much in a bit more detail, that video would be a, uh, a good watch. Next question is from Eddie Schurman, and I really like this one, Eddie. He said, um, he said uh, one of your most important mentors is Peter Considine. I can imagine that you spend hours discussing self-defense and martial arts with him, but what's the subject on which you do not have the same opinion? Uh, it's really good, that, because uh, one of the things that I often use at seminars, I use the uh, general pattern quote, where I say, if everyone thinks the same, then somebody isn't thinking. You know, so I always say the sign of a healthy group is that there's challenge and divergence and everything else like that, you see. And Peter is obviously, you know, a big influence, and we do spend hours discussing self defense and martial arts. Every time we train together, typically get there an hour beforehand and chat while we're warming up. Uh, we'll probably talk for an hour on the phone every week, you know what I mean, about various bits and pieces. Um, so, yeah, we, we talk about stuff a lot. So, when this question was posed, I, I, <laughs> the next time I spoke to Peter, I goes, okay, what do we disagree on? Because cause I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to think of something martial or self-defense-wise, you see. Now, now of course, part of the, the issue is the reason that I've chosen to train with Peter is because uh, the way he thinks about and does things appeals to me and has demonstrably proved its value. Do you know what I mean? So, so it, 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 if Peter did things that, uh, that didn't appeal to me or I, I found didn't work, then obviously I wouldn't be training under him. So there's an element of self-selection here. And obviously from Peter's point of view, if he found me a, like a, a pain who kind of won't take instruction very well, he's got a certain point he's going to go, okay, I, you know, this, this guy's not fun to work with. So, so the fact that Peter has a lot of knowledge, a lot of skill, uh, I can see the value in that and I'm receptive to it means that there's a little bit of a synergy there, which means we're probably not going to disagree on much. So when we talked about this, one big difference between our practices is that I practice kata regularly and place a heavy emphasis on it, whereas Peter doesn't. But that, that's not really a disagreement in opinion, because uh, if you listen to the podcast that Peter and I did together, Peter can see the value and utility in kata. It's just that uh, as Peter was coming up through the grades, he got uh, very interested in the full contact side of things. So started training a lot for full contact. Uh, as a result of that, the cutter doesn't really fit that objective and therefore got dropped that little bit, you see. So as a result of that, it, it, it's kind of the paths we've both taken, you see, um, into terms of where we end up. So there's, there's not a lot, you know what I mean? And because, you know, Peter, what he does is practical, it's logical, uh, highly functional, and is demonstrably so. So th there's not much we disagree with that. The one thing we do, a taste in music's an obvious one, to be honest, because when we train, uh, Peter uh, puts music on in the background, some of the other guys that train with us may like it. Uh, it may help them. My brain just blanks it out. <laughs> so it's like like the dance music style stuff. I don't even know it's on. I wouldn't even notice if they didn't put it on. My brain just edits it out. Uh, you know, child of the 70s, right? Raised on punk and I've never kind of I still like punk. I still have that unresolved teenage dance that the punk rock stuff appeals to. Um, so music is one. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's other things as well, but when it comes to self-defense and martial arts, I can't think of anything. But again, that's not 
a lack of critical thinking, that's because having applied that critical thinking, I find myself reaching similar conclusions to, to Peter. Okay, so the next question is from Andrew Sheldon Thompson. This is what are the top five uh, channels stroke martial artists you would recommend checking out? So it, I have a similar problem with this one than, than I did to the initial question. Is it there's just so many? So uh, what I'll do, uh, so many people doing such good stuff, but maybe I can think of some that I haven't mentioned so far. So uh, I haven't mentioned Rory Miller so far, right? So uh, obviously Rory's stuff, uh, everyone should be familiar with that. You know, brilliant stuff. Uh, Mark McYoung. Uh, again, another excellent self-defense author uh, that people should be checking out. Uh, I haven't mentioned Jamie Club so far. Um, uh, Jamie Club stuff, his books, podcasts are brilliant. Uh, I, I, I like the martial arts journeys, uh, Gretchen Carlson's podcast. Uh, Gretchen's a friend of mine from the States, really enjoy her podcast. Tim Smith's Kung Fu podcast is is uh, uh, is really good. So that's that's uh, um, another one I, I, would, I would strongly re recommend checking out. You've got uh, Marshall Journeys, uh, Rockus's uh, YouTube channel, uh, Aikido guy who's moved on to MMA. I think he produced some great content, very thoughtful. Uh, I, I like uh, the enthusiasm that Jesse Enkamp shows and the, the wide range of uh, uh, the facets of karate that it, that, it, that he covers. These are all people that I think are providing uh, good quality content and making a positive contribution to the community. So there's more than five. And there's loads, I mean, and everyone I mentioned before as well, you know, Andy Allen, Lee Taylor, uh, Les Bupka, um, everyone, you know, all of them. There's just so much good stuff, it's difficult to know when to stop. So, um, but yeah, hope that's of use. So the next question is from uh, Travis Becker. He said, what are the chances of you doing a seminar tour of the Northwestern United States anytime soon? So I love going to the USA. It's always like, loads of fun over there. Got lots of good friends over there. Weather's great. Food's great. You know, what's not to like, you know, so I'll, I'll definitely uh, hope to visit my friends in the US uh, uh, in the not too different future. But on the moment, uh, all the seminars pretty much bar one or two uh, outside of Europe are on hold. I've got a three year old daughter at home, but baby daughter at home. So I don't want to be traveling too far away. So for the foreseeable future, I'm limiting myself to the UK and the rest of Europe. For the seminar so i'm never that far away from home and once a year i'll probably travel further afield so this year i went to australia for a few days i've got plans next year to go to uh, canada for a few days uh, but um yeah so uh, it, at the moment it's, it's on hold because obviously family has to come first but i will be back really like uh, the u.s so the next question is from uh, Daniel Marino. It says, uh, something that's been on my mind lately that makes me think a lot about you and your work is what defines uh, artistic achievement in the martial arts? Do you consider your methods to constitute your own style? And if so, what advice would you offer to practitioners that want to pursue their practice in a similar way? Uh, what are good things to keep in mind for those of us who are actively developing our own unique style of karate practice? That's a could be a potentially a very deep question that Daniel, I, I like it. You know, what defines artistic achievement uh, in the martial arts? So in terms of uh, do I consider my methods to constitute my own style, uh, not in the sense that you'd think of a martial arts style. I always say that if, if Ian Rue ever exists, I've failed. Because part of the things that I think any healthy approach to martial arts does is it keeps evolving. And if you have this idea where you go, okay, this is the style, 
then by definition, anything that's not already there is not the style. Um, so I, I want to kind of have that shuhari principle, that, can, that development built in. So I want, I'll do my karate, which will develop, uh, but I also want my students to do their karate, which will develop. So I, I guess in terms of, you know, what would I regard of my achievement with that, it would be helping other people develop their own approach to the martial arts as opposed to propagating my own. Um, you know, so if what I do is helpful to other people in what they do, I would regard that as being a, a success. Uh, if I'm getting people to copy what I do, then I'll regard that to be a failure because that direct copying means that they're not developing or, or don't feel able to develop. I also, it's a bit like raising kids, right? You know, at a certain point, you want the children to be able to manage without you. You know, if, the, if they're constantly dependent upon you, you're not a good parent. So I think it's the same when you come to be an instructor. If that student is forever dependent upon you or is only able to do what you specifically taught them to do, you haven't developed someone who can find their own way in the world. You know what I mean? So so, so, so that would be it for me. I, I would hope when it's all said and done that there's, there's a good number of people out there who said, yeah, you know, Ian helped us do what we do. I would hope there's not many out there who are saying, yeah, we do exactly what Ian does because I, I don't want them to do that. I don't think there would be, but just in case. Uh, and, and things to keep in mind for the, developing our own unique style of karate practice. Um, I think if you pursue efficiency, both in terms of training methods and combative function, uh, that's the, the objective measure. And if things can be improved a little bit, then we've got no problem, you know, object taking those things we should have no objections to uh, continual development and for, for me again that would be the same thing is just you know understand that what you want to do is do the best possible karate for you and your ob uh, objective would be to help other people do the best possible karate for them i think when we're doing that that's when karate will you know get you know good and healthy and will continue to to grow because I, I, I use that analogy you know we talk about traditional roots and i'm proud of my traditional roots you know uh, but the, the point with, of a root, its job is to n n provide the nutrients for growth. That's what roots do. So you would never look at a dead tree and say it's got strong roots, right? If that tree is not growing, the roots aren't doing anything. They're dead. The purpose of the roots is to, you know, to provide that anchor, but also to encourage that, that new growth, right? And I think that's, that's what traditional roots should also do i want to see that 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 growth so again just to return to what we're talking about if, if i can be part of the roots for someone else's development then i feel i've done a good job so i hope you enjoyed that still in the car obviously uh, obviously i recorded the introduction and then went straight to this so i haven't been in the car for all the time that you've listened to that obviously um, but yeah, you'll have noticed in this one as well, uh, there's not quite as many adverts in this one because I recorded what I thought was more than enough <laughs> uh, and then realised I'd talk for longer than I anticipated on pretty much every single question. So uh, yeah, sparser adverts in this one and there's none left at all for the uh, third one. Uh, but you know, hopefully the content will make up for that. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed part two. Uh, part three will be with you uh, very shortly. <laughs>